Welcome to Writing the Wrong Way, a podcast for creative people that want to tell new stories in new ways and have sustainable artistic careers. I'm Jonathan Ball, and I hold a PhD in creative writing, and I'm the author of many books, including poetry, fiction, nonfiction, and comics. I also own a company called Stranger Fiction. Stranger Fiction is a new publisher of unconventional genre fiction, but we also help people learn how to be more creative and have better careers. We also work with companies that need to stand out from the crowd. Uh, And Stranger Fiction, of course, also publishes this podcast. So go to strangerfiction.ca where you can find a ton of free stuff you won't see anywhere else, including the show notes for this episode. I'm really pleased to be talking to Jim B. Kamichik today, who's an artist and a writer and somebody I've done a lot of, uh, I've known for a long time. I've done a lot of work with, uh, and I, we're talking about the eye collector, which is a comic series that we have coming out of heavy metal, uh, heavy metals, virus comics imprint. And so I just want to dive right into this. You know, you can get, uh, a sense of who Gregory is and what we're doing together. Uh, this went on quite a while. We had a lot to talk about. And so there's actually gonna be a second part of this episode. Uh, which is going to be available from Gregory's podcast, Super Pulp Science. So uh, on Thursday, uh, you know, check out Super Pulp Science, get the second part of this interview. guest today is Jim B. Kamichik, who is my co-creator for The Eye Collector, a graphic novel and comic book miniseries coming out of heavy metal. Uh, so, uh, Gregory, let's just dive right into it uh, and talk a little bit about how we came to do The Eye Collector. Yeah, how did it start? Well, for me, it goes real far back uh, because it's kind of started in like 2000 and. 1, 2002, uh, I remember uh, distinctly, it was kind of in the wake of September 11th, actually. Um, and, you know, everybody was just sort of feeling discombobulated and didn't really know what was going on. You know, I had friends asking me, like, did they think we were going to be embroiled in a war now or what was going on? Like, it was just kind of a very uh, shell-shocked sort of time. Um, and... In that sort of period, the university was a very, um, like, it was a place where nobody really knew what to do next, you know? Like, they didn't know, should they be having classes? Should they not be having classes? Like, it was just very, you know, confusing. And around that same time, I had this reading list uh, that my professor, uh, George Tolls, had given me. Now, George Tolls is, uh, a, you know, film and literature professor at the University of Manitoba, but he's also the screenwriter for many of Guy Madden's movies. If you don't know Guy Madden, he's a very, you know, uh, well-known art filmmaker in Canada and internationally regarded. Uh, so I had kind of gravitated to George in a couple ways. One was because he's just a great prof. He's like, was my favorite prof. Uh, but also he was, straddling this interesting line of like being a prof, but also actually, you know, making real movies, you know? And so I really liked him. We got along really well. We had a lot of the same um, interests liter- in terms of art. And we both really, really liked, he, he said to me, you know, you should really read more German romantics. Uh, you'd like the German romantics. And so he gave me a little reading list. And on that list was the 
The Sandman by E.T.A. Hoffman, which is a fairly well-known story, but not a really well often read story. Uh, E.T.A. Hoffman's best known for the writing the Nutcracker uh, suite, like the the kind of works that served as the basis for that. Um, but uh, his arguably most important work is a short story called The Sandman, uh, which was the story that Sigmund Freud used to develop his idea of the uncanny uh, in a very famous essay called On the Uncanny. So I read this uh, short story and I was so taken with a short story. Plus I had Guy Madden in my head because I would you know, uh, really kind of been absorbing that. Uh, and I was just so enthusiastic about George and kind of doing stuff with George. I kind of reoriented my whole life to take a master's degree where I was going to work with George and the eye collector was going to be my thesis. I, or, well, it wasn't called the eye collector then. It was called the Sandman. I was going to write a feature length screenplay adaptation of this out of copyright E.J. E. Hoffman story and really just sort of transform it and change it and make it my own. So that was, that screenplay was really the first draft of this project and then you can kind of fast forward uh, a little bit. At, you know, uh, again, that was like a, a lo- long process to put that project together. But while I was putting that project together is when I met you. So maybe you want to take over and kind of dive in uh, to the story here. Well, um, that was much more comprehensive than I expected to get as to your uh, buildup to that, I have to say. Um, more uh, tongue-in-cheek, I... Um, through a feat of charlatanism and ledger domain, managed to get myself into an advanced creative writing uh, program that I had no uh, reason really or credentials to be a part of. And that's where I met you. And uh, we kind of, one of the things that I liked about your uh, writing the whole time was that it was unabashedly uh, esoteric, strange, and a little bit Byzantine. And then it would usually end on a really kind of amusing punchline that took all the piss and vinegar and sort of self-importance and mixed it all together into this like little sort of strange milieu. So like all this to say, I liked the writing. I liked your attitude about how writing in a lot of ways is kind of bullshit and that you should just make stuff and try stuff and do stuff. And sometimes people like it and sometimes they won't. And so we kind of kept in touch after that uh, initial class. And I, of course, uh, hosted that very interesting group of writers at my own house after that class was finished for a couple of years. We had a writer's group and um, always kind of flirted with the idea that there might be a project that we could find to do. And then I guess I was working on the Imagination Manifesto. Uh, This would have been like 2004 or five at that time. And we got together and I was showing you some of that stuff and you were saying, oh, I have this screenplay. Oh, maybe it could be a graphic novel. I don't know what it could be. Could you do some imagery for it? And it was actually one of the first times that my work was ever uh, stolen and republished um, without my knowledge or consent um, by a German publication. I had posted on my blog back in the uh, those days, uh, people blogged and uh, so did I. And I posted some imagery from our E.T.A. Hoffman um, sort of exploration of this character, uh, 
that we started to call the eye collector. And it was just this weird image of this amorphous blobbed headed creature with all these different eyes holding a bunch of holding a handful of eyeballs. And it was just us playing around with the horror uh, and macabre elements. And then later I found out that uh, that image and a number of things from the blog had been stolen and reprinted in a German magazine. This oh. is like in 2008 or something. So Somewhere it's some time ago there, even yeah. still. So keep in mind, you know, we're, we're talking in 2021 when the first issue of the eye collector has you know come out uh, and, you know, we were doing this five issue story arc. Right. And, uh, but what we're talking about, that's, this is like when we're talking now, but what we're, we're talking about is, you know, back in 2005 uh, and 2006, 2007, like, yeah, like 15 years previous, we mm. had played around with it. We just kept saying, there's something here. There's something that it could be. What could it be? Well, and there's a couple sort of steps in there that I think are important to just quickly note and to maybe give a few people credit for. So one thing that kind of was happening in here was I had taken, like I say, I had gotten a degree with this master's thesis, uh, the Sandman, and uh, in, and then I'd started to get deeper and deeper into filmmaking and um, screenwriting. Uh, and at one point we were, you know, of course we, you and me had this writers group that we were a part of that was hosted at your house that you mentioned. But additionally, I started hanging out with some screenwriters and we would have, we had a sort of different writers group going on where we just sort of show up at this one bar and we'd hang out in the corner and we would have read each other's scripts before this and give each other feedback on it. And one of the people in that uh, group was, it was a very casual group that we people would kind of show up sometimes and, and so on. But one of the people in that group was uh, the writer director Danishka Esterhazy, who's done a really great film recently called Level 16 that got her a lot of acclaim. And she actually, her next film is The Slumber Party Massacre. She's remaking that. She remade it. She's you know, putting it together now. Um, so she's, you know, she was reading this script and she said to me, she goes, she, you know, this doesn't really work as a movie at all because it isn't like you've got this character who's a kid for the first like 30, 40 minutes. And then, you know, you got this guy who is an adult, like he just jumps forward into being an adult. She's like, imagine how that would play out in a movie. She's like, you, you're with, uh, you know, Haley Joel Osment for 30 minutes, then he's dead. He never comes back. And then all of a sudden Tom Cruise is, you know, in there and you know, she's like, there's just no way to make that movie. Like nobody is going to allow you to make a movie with that structure. Uh, she go and it, and the audience will feel like it's kind of two movies. So she kind of was like, either you need to kind of normalize it by doing a bit of a cross cutting thing. She goes, or uh, maybe you, it shouldn't be a movie. And you know, this is really more of a novel structure. Like you might just want to kind of think about it more like a book or something. And she was really right about that. <laughs> but I was like, I instantly saw that she was right. Uh, and a couple other people were kind of saying similar things. Uh, and I also, though, didn't want it to be a novel. You know, I was like, why take a prose short story and adapt it to a prose novel? Like, it just is like, I know people have done that kind of thing, but it just seemed weird and dumb to me. So I kind of didn't know what to do. <laughs> it wasn't of interest. Yeah. And so, like, uh, I was like, well, it's kind of lame to adapt a short story as a novel, you know. But but I was like, but what? It, but then I kind of again kind of with talking to you and and seeing some of your visual work because when i met you uh when you say you work in the imagination manifesto but really you were doing a novel version of the imagination manifesto and it wasn't until i got to know you a little while that i actually realized you also drew uh, and had you know some talent as an illustrator and an artist 
Uh, and so as I started to see, like, as I was kind of seeing more of your actual visual work, um, I, uh, and in reading also your prose work, I started one to realize, you know, a, uh, your, you and I had similar interests in terms of the kinds of like themes we were interested in. Like we both are really interested in this idea of what is reality and what is somebody's perception of reality and how does it uh, twist and distort and fall apart and things of this nature. And we were also yeah, very as, interested as we're in being collage. Academic, as long as we're being academic mm-hmm. about it, we might as well get into one of the things that I'm very fascinated with is the semiotic arrival at meaning. And yes. so, you know, the nerd heart in me that owned a comic store and makes comics and does all these other things was always brushing up against this other part of me that recognized that, um, you know, the real is that which can is that which can be recreated and that when you represent an image over and over, um, it acquires meaning. And isn't that just what comics are? And don't things acquire popularity simply because we've seen them a bunch uh, that their inherent value uh, is sometimes in question and that it's only their repetition that gives it meaning. And there's all of these things that um, are usually not useful in a uh, career building exercise of trying to make comics, but these were the kinds of conversations you and I would have uh, and it was fun to explore. Yeah, we were both reading Baudrillard. We were both interested in the Surrealists. We both really liked collage, you know? Like, I wasn't um, making art, like visual art, uh, whereas you were also writing, you know, like, but like... Well, you were making visual art. This was right around the time you made a short film and then sold it to the Comedy Network. I guess so. I I just never think of myself... Like, at best, I was, you know, doing some indie photography that wasn't you know but 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 i always like wanted to kind of do what you were doing like i always wished i had a more visual eye and visual style and um, i felt that i did uh in words you know and i was and I, and I just felt like very in sync with you in terms of what you were interested in um and additionally i want to say like it, it we like we got along which i think is really important you know if you want to work with somebody yeah, um, it is a it is a big deal. There's another side of it too, and I think it's important if we're talking about, you know, on uh, if you're talking about creative collaborations and ones that work and ones that don't work. Um, one of the things that I find is I find myself playing different roles in different collaborations, and I I collaborate with lots of different people on lots of different kinds of projects, and sometimes my role is a um, like an encouragement machine where the other people's best work is brought forward when I remind them everything they're capable of. And sometimes my role is as an architect to say like, these are the different moving parts we need to put into this project. Sometimes it's as a writer just to provide words and other people will have those, uh, will have the visual inputs. And sometimes it's to, to take other people's words and, and to provide a visual input. But one of the things that I've always appreciated about our collaborations on this and on some other projects um, not yet announced is that I never have to uh, take the time to tell you or encourage you it or in the um, actual value of artistic expression that may or may not be commercially important that there's a, I never have to convince you that we're going to make art first and then figure out how to sell it second. 
Sure. That's an argument I have a lot with people uh, that you have to make a thing before you can decide whether it's even worth selling. And, you know, I think it's your poet's heart that knows that creative expression is uh, uh, just a valuable part of being alive. And that if you make enough of something, then you can decide what to do with it. Um, and so the eye collector is one of those one of those places where we just kind of said, okay, well, we're going to make this thing. Who knows what it's for, but let's just make it anyway. Well, the deal I made with myself when I was very young, Gregory, I grew up in a very small town and it was isolated. You know, it wasn't like today, right? With the internet, it was just the beginnings of the internet. The internet was like, you know, boobs and Nirvana lyrics. Like that was the whole internet. You know, it wasn't yet like people connecting and it wasn't yet like a thing that would help you or hurt you in terms of that connection, right? you know, across the world. I was in a town of a hundred people. It was extremely isolating. I was the only person who cared about any of the things I cared about. And when I, I made a vow when I was very young, like I would, now I kind of regret this vow, but, but I made a vow that like, I was so bored and I just vowed that I would, when I grew up and I moved out, I would never be bored again. And so my sort of way that I, um, uh, my way that I've, and I also kind of made a few promises to myself, uh, in terms of like my life and creativity. So one of them was that I was going to be a writer and that's just what I was going to do. And whether, you know, I succeeded or failed in it, I was going to be doing it. And so I never, I, I was always just sort of working on like trying to figure out how to succeed in it, but also, uh, the, but the more important thing for me was to do it. And so there was also this sort of thing that went along with it where I made a deal for myself. Uh, and this kind of ties in what you were talking about. Like I made a deal to myself very early on in my, uh, life and writing career that, um, I was going to allow myself to be as weird as possible in the work and not worry about its commercial um, potential until, but then after I was, the, the flip side of that deal was uh, I wouldn't worry about the commercial potential of anything I was doing as I was doing it. But when I was done doing it, I would just pretend it had commercial potential and I would do whatever I could to, you know, you know, put that work out as if it was commercially viable, even if I, even if nobody said it was, <laughs> and even if I knew it probably wasn't. So I just never wanted to get in that trap. I think a lot of people get into of that they try to change what they're doing to be more commercially viable, or they sort of give up their ambition because well, they know they're doing something started, weird. I'll also mention at that time, you know, it's 2021 now, but in 2000, in 20 in 2001 uh trend focused writing pitches was mm -hmm. a thing yes right write the next vampire novel write the next what you write whatever that thing yeah, was yeah. this was like a big part of how we were and i was so disgusted by that as a notion um that you should write on trend um because for me writing is always about self-archaeology and um, not that, you know, any individual person can, has a whole bunch to say that everyone should listen to, but simply that you should try to explore some part of yourself in the creative work so that even if the work has no uh, financial component, if it has no artistic merit, at least you grew a little bit as a person when you're done making it. 
See, I never had that lofty ambition. I just didn't want to be bored. I thought it was boring to do what other people did. You know what I'm saying? Like right, I, my sure. ambition was just simply, I don't want to write vampires. If everyone's writing vampires, I, it's boring to me now, you know? And so perhaps I, sh I didn't, but I never like felt like it's artistically invalid to jump on the trend. I just thought it was stupid. And why would I want to do that? Like, <laughs> you know, so, which is probably a bit of real, you know, kneecapping in my career, but I just, it, 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 it kind of ends up in the same spot as you, uh, Right. And so I thought we were very much, I really liked how you were never, you didn't seem afraid to do weird things. And in fact, you seem to be just running like headlong at the weirdness. And <laughs> well, what and, we both kind know. of realized at, at a certain point, I don't think we realized this earlier, but I think what we started to realize is that how you be successful as an artist is you just keep doing the thing that other people aren't doing. Yeah. And you just don't stop doing it. And we were both in, um, maybe privilege is the wrong word, but we were in privileged positions that, uh, we had uh, life architecture in place that allowed us to mm -hmm. make other stuff, which is a fancy way of saying that uh, we were in a position where we had other ways to make money. And so we could make art that didn't make money. Yeah. Or at least we were tenacious enough to like just find other ways to make money, you know? So a bit, it was a bit of both things. Right. But, but I think like, if we would just want to fast forward a little bit here, um, even though we were kind of eyeing up this collaboration early on, you know, it never really materialized for quite some time, um, which, you know, is due for a lot of reasons. Uh, one is, you know, both of us were just sort of like had various personal life reasons where we couldn't just single our time into this thing. But the other side of it, though, is like we're both, as you mentioned, like we're both people who do a lot of different things and we just kind of pursue a lot of different projects. And like the idea always is like, well, if you do 10 things, maybe one of them will hit and then like I'll follow that one for a while. Uh, right. And so uh, it just sort of was a situation where we both were doing a lot of work, but we weren't really working on this thing together, even if we kind of crossed paths and worked on something else here and there uh, together. But finally, I was... Uh, I kind of got to the point where I really want to take comics more seriously. And I'm glad you brought up that seriousness moment because I also had reached a place at that, you know, just in the last like couple of years where um, I no longer did things that were whimsical for the sake of their whimsy. I also decided that I would only work with people who were serious about their whimsy. Yeah. Right. Like it's okay to have flights of fancy. In fact, I love that and encourage that in almost everyone I meet. Uh, I always want people to try and experiment with stuff. But if you're only experimenting and you're going to do it for a couple of weeks and then you're done, I do not want to work on a creative project with you. If you're serious about a year long exploration of like some weird thing, man, let's sign up and really delve into it. And that's kind of you had said, I'm going to be serious about making graphic novels. Um, let's do this. And I had a place in my schedule where I really wanted to just explore some different kinds of visual uh, contexts. And then lo and behold, um, the, the world uh, decided that uh, we both needed a break from our regular workaday lives. And uh, they canceled the whole world with a global pandemic. And we finally had some time to work on this one. Just so that people could do the eye collector. Um, <laughs> you got no well, idea. I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to reduce <laughs> the uh, amount of suffering yeah, yeah. that this has caused into well, uh, my own 
But thing, even but without the pandemic, we, we were, we had put the infrastructure in place to work on it before that. Like what we had done leading up to uh, the pandemic hitting was again, I decided, you know, I want to get a bit more serious about doing this. I needed a project that I could really, I felt like where I wasn't, I was very intimidated by writing comic. Um, and so I was like asking, I, I don't know if you remember, but I was like asking you like questions, you know, incessantly about making comics where I'd be like, how many pages should a comic be? How many, you know, what do I do about this? You know, what do I do about that? Like what, where, where should the um, surprises go? Like you'd give me all these like very technical um, answers to questions, which I had really been appreciating. And so I kind of was started to get to the point where I was like, well, if I need to work on a comic and I become a real comics writer, there's a couple of things that have to happen. I started like, I got, I'm very analytical. So I started like going through the checklist. I'm like, the easiest way to do this would be to do with Gregory. Cause then if I don't know what I'm doing, I can just ask him. <laughs> <laughs> I go. And also I know Gregory is not going to draw exactly what I tell him to draw. So if I screw up the script, he'll just fix it. <laughs> right. Funny you say that because <laughs> one of the things that I find uh, interesting or hard to get across to some collaborators uh is that you if you just need an illustrator i'm not your guy if you're willing to explore the illustration potential around this idea i'm your i'm i'm interested in that and so you know you inadvertently had created that scenario for yourself yeah. And then I also did a thing that I think a lot of people don't do, uh, but need to kind of like, <laughs> like think about doing like at that supporting stage is that I had then like spent some money, uh, buying pages from you, you know, uh, actually getting, you know, a, a, a group of pages together. Uh, so I sunk some, you know, personal money, like, you know, a good little chunk of change into getting some pages together. So that I could then put together a grant proposal or some, you know, pitches out to magazines or, or not magazines, but publishers and so on. Uh, and then it, it so happened that uh, that investment, you know, paid off uh, after a few grant allocations and we got some money to put together an issue. Uh, and then, you know, as that issue started to come together, I got another grant to do a bit more and we kind of started to ladder it up like that. Um, but there's a couple of things that happened in there. So one was, you know, I did some personal investment to kind of put me in place where I could get some actual, you know, grant money for the Manitoba Arts Council and the Winnipeg Arts Council who have really been generous with this particular project, but also in the spirit of collaboration that you're talking about, this is when in this sort of mix is when I decided that. I wanted to kind of offer to bring you on as like a full co-creator who actually has a stake in the ownership of this and so on, rather than, you know, a hired gun. Yeah. Cause when we were talking originally, it was like, Hey, I'm going to, you know, I want to do this graphic novel. And I said, okay, well, yeah, I, I illustrate graphic novels professionally. Here are my rates and here's how it would work. Um, here's the ways I do work. Here's the ways I don't work when I'm working in this fashion. And, uh, you know, you and I always had these tongue in cheek conversations where I would say like, uh, unless I own it and then it's different, you know, yeah. or unless I have a piece of it, then it's different. Then my rate is always different if I have a piece of it after, um, uh, because I had learned, uh, the hard way that it's really important to own your own, uh, intellectual property outright. If you ever want to leverage it in another way, it's really hard to make a living as an artist, um, at the best of times, 
uh, and these aren't necessarily the best of times. So it became, you know, really, uh, I had to be a little bit Machiavellian in my uh, way of approaching this project, just because also, um, you know, when you're working with a friend, it can be very difficult to mix business with friendship. And so I just had to have a certain number of things uh, set up to create the temperature of that relationship. And then at a certain point, you just said, hey, how would you do this? What would you do this? If you're going to fix this or change this or do whatever, um, come and be a part of it. And that, you know, that changes everything because then uh, the role of the work is not just an interpretation of somebody else's idea to the best of your ability to interpret their idea, but a um, scaffolding together of two sets of conditions that will then make work. Another thing that kind of is in the mix here in terms of how I was thinking about it was, uh, I mean, again, I've been, you know, following your career, of course, because we, you know, knew each other and I'd seen all the stuff that you were doing, you know, like, you know, we're always kind of in each other's orbits there. And so uh, I was uh, seeing all the stuff you were doing and, and just kind of following all the things you had done. And I could see very clearly, like, where your work was going was very much into a space where I thought it would work for this project. And, and I also could started to really clearly see what I thought you could bring to the project in, on top of and beyond like, uh, like what I was doing or what I thought I could bring to it. Uh, and so something that kind of like, on one hand, this was a story that I had been sitting with for a long, long time and had a very personal like connection to and you know didn't necessarily just want to part with but at the same time it was a story that i was really loosely basing on an existing property like it's very loosely by the time that where you like <laughs> you know uh looking at the new version uh like it, it, it's so far removed from even my original adaptation which was already very far removed from the original story that you know the sam is almost like a man in the moon at this point, uh, more than the Sandman. But, um, uh, and of course, you know, we're not calling it the Sandman, it's the eye collector, right? But um, it had just gotten so far away from the original idea. It, it was very, it had gotten more personal in many ways, but there, I just kind of been with the idea so long that it kind of felt like I, I and I'd seen so much of your stuff that I knew, like, I knew that even if you changed a lot of it, it would, we both had so many similar ways of looking at this kind of material that the core of it would stay the same. And so I felt like the best way to get the best, like, uh, stuff out of you really like, and really, I thought you could really elevate the project in a way that, um, like beyond just providing artwork and illustration for it. So I thought it was, you know, really a great, uh, kind of, you know, match made in, in hell in that respect. <laughs> well, it's nice you of know? you to say that. It's important, I think, for the listener to know that uh, usually what would happen is Jonathan would provide me with a script page um, and 70% of it, uh, I would kind of try to cling to the main beat. But then if a visual element you know, struck, I would go immediately very far afield of the original concept and maybe twist it or look at it from a different point of view or include repetition of imagery instead of uh, the called for script beats. So uh, it, 
from a, a certain type of writer's point of view, it would have been a nightmare to see that kind of change arrive every time a script page was delivered. And instead it became a way of, uh, of Jonathan uh, would write this thing in the script pages that would say, this is what I think should happen unless you can draw something more interesting. And then it became a challenge for me to try and say, okay, what would be a more interesting way to represent this? That is in keeping with the previous pages and in keeping with where we want the story to go and is in keeping with this experimental language that we're trying to, you know, develop and none of that having anything to do with what a, a typical substantive editor would say, this is good for the reader, right? We didn't do that at the beginning. Yeah, like I, I feel very confident in my skills as a writer, but it, it was a territory. Like this is the first comic I've ever written. So I certainly didn't feel like I was like the god of comics, you know, who needed to come in and art direct the whole thing. In fact, I kind of was really felt I was going to have to lean on you. And so, you know, it would just make sense for you to kind of be a co-creator in the whole thing. Uh, I also just felt it would give you a bit more like emotional stake in the project and you'd kind of take it more seriously, you know? Uh, <laughs> well, it's always the it's always the way it works, right? You yeah. Know, if anyone wants to take a page and figure out how to apply it to their own process, if you make people um, if you make people part of a project rather than just complicit in it, you'll get a lot more uh, you get a lot more out of them. Yeah, and maybe we should start to kind of talk a bit at this point about like uh, where we brought you know Linden into the project and uh, kind of how our process of working was you kind of started to touch on it but like why don't you talk in a bit more of a precise way about how things kind of went from my script pages to the final page um okay but before we do that before we get there let me counter offer a question to you john all right we are uh, pitching the eye collector as a horror story um why don't you first tell me what a horror story is supposed to be and whether you think the eye collector succeeds or fails in this idea of being scary. Sure. Uh, well, I have really specific ideas about what a horror story is or should be. So, you know, take what I'm saying with a bit of a, uh, with the grain of salt of, you know, that this is coming from my very specific point of view on what a horror is or should be, you know, so I could talk about this forever, but just to really quickly kind of run through the concept. I think when horror is at its best is when it is occupying kind of radical point of view. Uh, and this radical point of view gets uh, symbolized at, in the monster. I think uh, the best horror has a monster that has really particular qualities. Uh, it's a thing that should not be. It's a thing that you know, is doing things it should not do. You know, it's this abnormal, transgressive thing. But I think it's also symbolic uh, of a fate worse than death uh, from the point of view of the protagonist, which is always at some level coming back to this shattering of reality. I think the monster represents this total uh, antithesis of what the protagonist, you know, the victim uh or potential victim thinks the world is, but also, and I think you know the, the the best horror goes a step further of arguing thematically that the monster is the truth and the monster is right, 
and the monster is the moral center of the story in a strange way. Like on the surface, it seems like the monster is, um, you know, the problem uh, because fundamentally it's here killing everybody, destroying everything. But I think the best horror, or at least the most radical and interesting horror to me, also goes a step further and posits that this monster is correct to do the things that it is doing. It represents the true point of view. Uh, this is the, what reality is. Is uh, The horror story is so much about, you know, it seems like this monster shouldn't exist, and yet here it is, you know. And we have to get rid of it to reestablish our sense of reality. And I think, like, the best horror just kind of insists that the monster can't be killed, that the monster is the truth and everything else is a lie. Uh, the monster is not part of the coming from the outside, not, you know, this alien creature, but actually something fundamental uh, to reality itself. And in a way, it's more real than everything else, even though it might seem like this dreamlike thing. And it has a point of view that is in a strange sort of way correct. And the solution uh, that very few protagonists ever uh, succeed in, like the solution to the horror story uh, on a certain level is to stop being horrified by the monster. But of course, you know, almost nobody, and just accept its truth. If you can accept the truth of the monster, then you can survive. And you see that in horror, there's a trope in horror uh, where you see that play out in a very simplistic way. That's the trope where uh, people just ignore that the monster is real. They can't believe it. And so therefore they fall victim to it. That's, you know, where people are like, they, you know, they they find like a body drained of blood with two punctures in its neck. And they're like, well, what could do this? You know, <laughs> and it's, right? Like that's the trope where it's like, they just can't believe monsters are real. Of course, monsters aren't real. Uh, therefore they fall victim and are killed by the monster and only the people. So there's like, that's the class, one class of victims in the horror story. There's another class of victims that accept the truth at a certain point. They just can't deny anymore that the monster isn't, is real. They have to accept that the monster is real, but they refuse to, uh, they're, they're trying to get rid of the monster. Uh, and they're trying to deny its reality, get it, shut it out of reality, destroy it, get, put it back into hell, whatever, right? Um, I think the most radical horror goes this extra step and the protagonists have to um, accept and become monsters. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm not saying this is what happens in the eye collector. I would argue um, there's some complicated things happening in the eye collector, but I think there's that level at which as people read this story, uh, like the eye collector, what I realized very at a certain point in our collaboration was as I was rewriting my old versions of things, uh, is that I kind of moved the eye collector from being this, you know, threatening nightmarish kind of more stock figure to being this figure who really sees himself as right. And he's just there to help from his point of view, uh, from the eye collector's point of view. And the eye collector, of course, you know, has all the points of view, <laughs> right? Um, from his point of view, you know, he doesn't understand why these people are so terrified. They should just, all he's trying to do is give them what they want. Um, uh, and really, in a, in a strange sort of way, the most frightening thing in this story is the revelation of what they truly want. 
And that's in okay, some respects so, the things they start to fight against. So that no, doesn't this is, get us too is, fully in. That's just kind of staying on the theme level without giving away too much plot. Yeah, but and like, this is all to say that one of the reasons why when you ask how did I approach the page, I think what's important for the uh, for anyone interested in this story or this the way that we work to understand is that I had had this conversation, which you just uh, summarized many times with you in many different ways and many different iterations uh, for years. So before I approached the page, I knew that my collaborator had a certain um, range of changes that would be acceptable given their point of view on what horror is, right? So I kind of knew where I could traverse uh, because of these definitions that you know, even as I asked you this question, I, I, I anticipated many of the ways you would summarize this because we've had this conversation. So I would keep those things, that list of things in mind whenever I would go through a script. So that was me talking to Grigory Kamichik about the eye collector. And remember, this is just part one. Part two is coming out Thursday on Gregory's podcast, Super Pulp Science. So go subscribe to my favorite podcast, Super Pulp Science, uh, and check out part two of our discussion concerning Guy Collector. <laughs>